Well, this is another first for me. I've never spoken to see if Tic Tacs and fudge. So it's a hard act to follow, I tell you what. So, well, you know, uh, my family and I, uh, some of you know, we run a camp called Knights of Heroes. It's for sons and daughters of fallen soldiers. And we, and we spent the weekend out there uh, getting our camp ready. We got about three months before camp to get started. And we had, um, and we had like sawzalls going and chainsaws and heavy equipment and, uh, you know, nail guns and all this stuff going on. And, and 118 acres and all these things going on, I run into a television. Think about that for a moment. There's only one on the property, and I run smack dab into it. Now, if you know me and you get to know me, you'll know a lot of things about me, but graceful is not a word ever associated with me. It's more like bull in a china closet. But I do remember when I was younger and I was playing basketball, I'd have these moments where everything clicked. You know, and you're, you're on the court and you're shooting, and it, it feels like, like you just can't miss. And what do we say about someone who's at that place? What are they in? Man, they're in the zone. You know, it's, it's just this moment where everything kind of goes away and you're fully concentrated on the moment and you're in the zone. You know, you experience this, a lot of athletes experience this, and writers and poets, that moment where everything passes away and you're fully in the moment. What uh, scientists and scholars have kind of deemed this lately is the word flow. And they've defined this as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. And what this is, is it's you at its best. It's you fully formed. And essentially what's happening scientifically is that your conscious brain is being put aside and your subconscious is taking over. And when your conscious brain goes aside, what's happening is all the negativity, all the doubts, and all the distractions are going away. And your mind can just function fully as it is. And in that moment, you're the best you you can be. And it's in these moments we've had some of the best creativity, some of the best thoughts, some of the best inventions that ever come our way. And while this has been around and they can trace this kind of phenomenon back to ancient Greece with Aristotle and and, uh, Socrates and some of their writings, it's only been the last 10 years scientists have started to study this because it's coming to the forefront. Google is actually spending millions of dollars on a facility so their engineers can go and find a place where they can optimize themselves because they want their engineers to clear away all the distractions so they can create the next big thing. The Navy SEALs are spending millions of dollars because they want to find out what it is that, that makes them who they are. And they need to make sure that they can get them to that place of optimization as quickly as possible. Because they're... This is what I ended up doing. They gave me a microphone. <laughs> so it's just roll with the punches. But um, what they're realizing when they put these people under brain scans, under meditation, that they're thinking, their cognitive skills, they increase 200% under meditation. Now, I don't know about you, but I could, re- I could use like 15%, you know. But when, when you get to that point, yeah, anything, I'll take anything at this point. But what we're seeing is, and it's interesting because they look at like meditation as a, as a means to an end, like how to do something greater instead of just being, instead of just being with God, and that's what we're missing. And, and this is what I find interesting in, in studying all this and looking at this. Because for me, I, I, I do a lot of writing, and I want to be able to get to that place of, of kind of flow, of getting that zone so I can write better, write more. 
but also from the standpoint of my life in Christ. How do I get rid of the distractions to be the best me I can be in Christ? And that's what I love about the Psalms and what we're going to look at this morning is the Psalms are, are David's meditations. They're, they're his thoughts, his words about how he comes to God, how he comes before him and, and lays everything down as king of Israel so that God can make him the best he can be. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalms 5 in our series, Finding God in the Psalms. And this is kind of David, how he moves from running his own life to letting God run his life. And the, and the Psalms is kind of divided into three different sections we're going to look at this morning. And it's how does David kind of get in the zone? How does David interflow in order to be the best he can be in God? And the first aspect, the first thing he does in order to get to this place is a routine. And we see this in Psalms 5, 1 through 3. And this is for the purpose of preparation, which is why this prep skit was so funny, because we do need to be preppers, but for a whole different reason than what you saw here. But we see this in Psalms 5, 1 through 3. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Routines, preparation are kind of the key to entering flow or the zone. Because you're, you're training your body, you're training your muscles, you're training your mind for a repetitive process. And this is what you're looking at, whether you're an artist, painter, writer, a Google engineer or a Navy SEAL, you want to be able to have the skill set to be able to take away your consciousness and just enter into what's happening. Enter into the moment to be the best you can be. Without preparation, without routine, you won't get there. And we prepare for a lot of stuff. You know, they do have preppers. We have people preparing for the zombie apocalypse. I mean, we prepare for anything. But what about our life in Christ? How do we prepare our heart how do we pray our soul, our mind, to be in Christ and to live as him? Because what we're, what's happening is, is when we're getting into this place of routine, we want our consciousness to go away. Because our consciousness is where all the negativity comes from. Where all those doubts, you're not good enough, you don't have what it takes, you can't do it. And that's what stops us. Most people aren't successful not because of their abilities, but because of the messages they keep hearing in their head. And that's what we have to move from. And that's what David is trying to move from with this routine. And he talks about his routine. He's like, I come to you every morning. Do you get that every morning? Just not when it's convenient. Just not when it works for me. Just not when I need something. Every morning. And it's an interesting aspect here because he comes before God with his morning sacrifice and waits and watches. It's kind of counter to what we believe in today's world because, you know, I come before God and pray, oh, Lord, would you come please bless what I am doing? I've got this great thing. Would you kind of lay your hand over it? Where David's going, God, here I am, send me. I'm laying this sacrifice before you. What work do you have going on that I can enter into? What a drastically different way to pray. 
You know, so many times I see Christians with exuberance and excitement run into battle armed with a pocket knife. And they come back wondering why they got crushed. And the main reason is preparation. They weren't coming before God and fighting the battle that he wanted them to fight. We generally get crushed because we're fighting our own battles and hoping God blesses it. Instead of sitting back and saying, God, where do you want me? If we're going to find our flow, if we're going to truly get into Christ, we have to learn to prepare every morning, every morning, and see what it means for us. Because how drastically would it change our lives if we came before God with prayer, finding out where he's moving, and entering into that moment. The next thing that David talks about in his finding flow is in Psalms 5, 4 through 6. And this is eradication. And this is the eradication of evil in our lives. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, that may seem like some harsh words from David. Now, to understand this, you got to remember there's, there's basically two sets of people, not only then but now. You have the sinners, the, the, the lost world, the people who don't know God. But then you have, in this case, the covenant people. These are the people that God made a covenant with, the children of Israel. They know God, they know what he's capable of, and they've turned their back on him. They've chosen to worship other gods and other idols. And those are the people that are coming after David as well. And he's saying, we need to eradicate that. We need to remove all evil. And we do need to remove all evil from our lives. And I think, I think we're really good at trying to do good. I don't think we're very good at trying to remove evil from our lives. Evil never comes in in a fail swoop. It is a slow creep that the darkness comes in and slowly takes over your life. And we justify it. Oh, do we justify it? Oh, what, what harm will it do? Oh, it's just a little bit of this or a little bit of that. In doing counseling for many years, I would have people come to my office, and they'd talk about these horrible things they would do, and they would justify it. Everyone had a justification for it. And my favorite one's always, well, that's just the way I am. You're kind of a jerk. <laughs> I don't think God created you as this holy, righteous being so that you could be a jerk. I think you can do better. But we justify everything and let the slow creep come on. We don't eradicate evil in our lives. And what's one of the main reasons that we don't call out evil around us and in our society? What do we not want to do? What? I'm trying to see if you are with me. So. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. Why? There's one word. We, we, we don't want to offend. We don't want to offend. Which is odd because in this day and age, it seems like we're offended by everything. But we don't want to offend. But let me tell you, if you follow Jesus Christ, and if you don't, just stick me with, with me here. But if you follow Jesus Christ and you follow the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel is an offensive message. The gospel is an offensive message. Jesus Christ came on the scene in Jerusalem 
And he had a message. His message was, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is near and come follow me. And he didn't care who he offended in the process of telling everyone. And we see in the gospel over and over again, which isn't the gospel, which isn't the Jesus we see in this modern world. In the modern world, we kind of, you know, made Jesus soft. You know, he's walking around carrying a lamb, throwing out candy, spreading good cheer. And that's our modern kind of, you know, middle-income Jesus that we like because it's comfortable. But, you know, you look at Jesus in the Bible over and over again, you see, a, you see a person who loved. You see a person who was good, who was righteous, who was holy, but he wasn't nice. He wasn't nice. And listen to these, some of these passages, and, and this is just out of the book of Mark. You can look at the other Gospels. Jesus sternly charges and strictly orders people to heals not to tell anyone. I just dramatically change your life, but don't go, don't go tell anyone. You know, he looks upon religious leaders with anger and grief and deep, deep sadness. Jesus speaks openly of the last judgment that entails rejection of many people, a sin that cannot be forgiven in the Holy Spirit, and a horrific consequences of misleading children. Jesus completely destroys a herd of swine without remorse or regard for the owner. When the people of town find out, they want him to leave. When Jesus was in the temples, he overturns tables in a moment of rage of what's happening in that moment. He rebukes Peter as Satan himself. He is indignant with the disciples. He says the Sadducees are biblically and spiritually ignorant and describes the entire generation as faithless. Jesus makes it clear that following him will entail suffering and death. Well, that's a great message. You know, I don't pretend to know what it's like to be a disciple. I know it had to be hard. I mean, you know, they, they, every time they think Jesus is going right, he goes left, and vice versa. That whole, what would Jesus do, would like, they would laugh at that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, I don't know. I was with them for three years. I'd never figured it out. <laughs> but there's this moment in Matthew 15 where Jesus is just ripping into the Pharisees. He's saying, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far off. And you have to remember the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, I mean, they were respected in their day. Some of the disciples probably wanted to be Pharisees at one point. They would have looked at them with respect. And Jesus is just tearing into them. And I have to imagine the, the disciples with eyes wide open and jaws drop like, what's he doing? Should we stop him? And then when he's done, they actually go to him in this moment in Matthew 15 and say, um, Jesus, I think you offended them. Like, and Jesus is just like, yeah, so what? They're blind guides. Don't listen to what they say. He's unapologetic in how he speaks and what he's talking about. He teaches a religion without rules, but by love and faith and trust. And it offended the Pharisees. Offended them so much, they had to kill him. Because what happens when you can't control your own emotions, you have to control other people's actions. And that's what Jesus left the Pharisees with, is they had to do something about him because I can't handle it myself. The only reason the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the only reason this Bible is in existence and we're still here today is because of God. Because his message is insanity otherwise. Because if you want to come and start a religion, these are the things you don't say. Listen closely. Blessed are the poor, hungry, and those who cry a lot. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and turn the other cheek. 
Bless those who revile and persecute you, exclude you, mock you, and utter all kinds of evil against you. And this is out of Luke 6. He says, yes, jump for joy when that happens. Leap for joy when people say those things about you. Be perfect as my father is perfect. Hate your mother and father. You're not going to have a place to live. Let someone else go and bury your dad for you. And you don't have time to say goodbye to your family. Woo, sign me up. That sounds wonderful. That's what we're following, folks. That's the message of Jesus Christ. He calls you to the impossible because he calls you something that greater than you can ever imagine for yourself. But we have to remove the distractions. We have to remove the evil in our lives. He never held back. He never attempted to sugarcoat his message. And if we're going to follow him, then we need to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Following Jesus is the most radical, crazy, mind-numbing adventure you will ever go on. And it's worth every step. But instead of, of jumping all in and following him, most of us spend our lives on the shore, kind of wading in the water, seeing how this is going to go, seeing what it's like instead of jumping fully in. Jesus laid a groundwork, and Jesus laid a foundation with a message that was offensive. But that's the beauty of it. Because of his message, we don't have to be offensive. You can't look at a lost and unbelieving world and expect them to see sin the same way we do. You've got to take them to the cross. You have to take them to Jesus and let them lay it down there before any transformation will ever occur. What Jesus called us to, in that mix of all that crazy stuff he talked about, We need to be offensive with love. We need to love. But that's hard. I know some people I don't even like. I know quite a few of them. So how do we do that? Well, that's what David says in in verses 1 through 3. You do it by daily coming before him. You do it by daily coming before God. And listening to what he has to say. Because I can't love some of those people and I never will be. But you know what? Christ can love them through me. But it's only going to happen if I come before him and drop who I am. And let him run through me. Jesus is a perfect example of flow. Although they'll never study him. Because we're all not to the point of Jesus. And don't get me wrong here. But we all have this divine side mixed with this human side. And what Jesus did, and it says he often went to the lonely places and prayed. He spent 40 days in the desert before he even went out in his ministry. And what he does in that moment is he's suppressing his human side. Because he can only do what he did through the divine working through him. And what David's talking about in these Psalms, about coming before God and wanting to kind of lessen himself, we see fully realized in Jesus as a person who, who let the human side go to let the divine work through him. And look what happens when you let the divine work through you. Because Jesus tells us you can do more things, greater things than I ever did. Wow. He did some awesome things. But you can do more. So the last thing David talks about in this passage and the way to find flow is submission. And he says this in verse 7 through 12. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house 
I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with a shield. If you've prepared for anything, if you've ever wanted to grow in anything, you've had to submit yourself to someone else's learning or counsel. When I was trying to write a book a couple years ago, I had no clue what I was doing. So I found a mentor. And he helped me, he guided me, he instructed me, and I had to submit myself to his authority if I wanted to be successful. The same thing with us. If we don't respect someone's authority, we're not going to listen to him. I mean, if you walked into a gym and you wanted to get in shape and the trainer comes out about 100 pounds overweight, eating a Twinkie with jelly donut on his lips, you know, not looking like he touched anything in years, you probably wouldn't listen to what he had to say. He could have the greatest routine you ever had. It could transform your life. But if you don't respect what they say, you're not going to listen to them. And that's what David's saying here is because of you, God, because of what you say, I submit myself to you. And he submits himself to God for three reasons. And the first is guidance. He's seeking guidance to God. And this is important here because he's seeking guidance because he knows God has a far greater plan for him than he ever had for himself. Remember for David, before God showed up on the scene, his greatest aspiration in his life was to be a shepherd. Now he's king of Israel. He had a greater plan for him, but he had to submit himself to God to understand and to hear what that plan was. He needed guidance. The second reason he does this is because of justice. And this is important here because it's an interesting point from David and Jesus is that, you know, when... They both call sin a sin, and they call it out. Even when David didn't recognize it, and other people had to come and call it out for him. But too often as Christians, we want to be judge, jury, and executioner when we see sin. And David, even though he's calling out these things that people are doing, they're evil, they have bad words in their mouth, they're, they're saying bad things, you take care of them. Let it be your job. Remember what we're called to do? We're called to love. And love in a mighty and impactful way. And leave the justice up to God. And the last thing he does is the reason is for a blessing. And again, this is an instance where we're not blessing. Hey, God, I got this thing going. Could you bless it? That'd be great. It's, God, what are you doing and what can I enter into? And I wish I could describe this blessing, the Old Testament blessing to you. But there's really nothing in our society that, that kind of is the same as an Old Testament blessing. When you look at, at uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Moses, the blessing was a powerful thing. It was placed upon you. It could not be taken away, could not be taken back, could not be reversed. It had eternal ramifications. And that's what David is saying here, God. I, I move into this place of who you are. I move into your righteousness for the purpose of receiving your blessing because that's what I want in my life. I want a, your blessing over my life. To sum all this up, what are we going to do with our lives? How are we going to live our lives? 
Are we going to live them for ourselves? Or are we going to live them for God? The only way we're going to do this is to remove the distractions of our life. The world is telling you to live life for yourself. The world is promising all these great things if you do things your, your way. And how's it working out for them? Just turn on the news for about five minutes. Jesus came and offered an amazing solution, an amazing way to follow him if we choose to lay down our lives before him. That was the amazing thing about the cross. Is before the cross, God resided in the temple. But when Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was torn. Why? Because Jesus chose to live in you. You are his temple. Which means he doesn't need you to protect the church. He doesn't need you to protect his message. But he would love for you to enter into the work that he is doing. To transform your own life and those around you. So the challenge for you today, as you leave this place, as you go off to the mountain, as you begin to work tomorrow, how can you remove the distractions of your life to become the best you you can be in Christ? How can you live a life completely surrendered and completely laid down to him? It will be the most amazing adventure in life you could ever imagine. As we enter into this time of communion, I want you to think about these things. Think about, as Jesus kind of laid this out, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. As you receive communion, what distractions do you need to remove from your life? And how do you, can you live fully and unrestricted for him? So as we pray, the, the people can come to serve the communion. Lord God, we just thank you for this time together just to be able to to remember whose we are and why we're here. And Lord, I just pray that um, we could come before you in a, in a great and mighty way to remove the distractions of our life and to be who we are in you to change the world because you have want us to and you called us to. Just thank you for this time. Thank you for this people. And I pray that as they leave this place, they could change their families, the world, this community for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.